Okay, so this is a bit of an unusual one. I'm like, I'm the guest of my own podcast because I've got a book coming out in December. I don't actually have a date yet. I would hate to give you a date and then it wouldn't hit that date. It's with the printers as we speak right now. The book is called... You don't want to be one of those like... Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? The book's called... It's coming out December 17th and it comes out fucking January 8th. Yeah, yeah. It comes out inauguration day. No, it was last year. But um, <laughs> comes out during the next riots. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I wrote this book called Fauville. Uh, it's a French title, means fake city. I pronounce it Fauville, but you started saying Fauville. And I was like, you know, the way you say it sounds better. So I'll start saying it the way you say it now. I mean, I'm not joking, man. This shit took, it would be five years in February since I wrote it. So I got it out just before the five year mark. That's like half my 20s. Boom. Would you reckon that's a normal time frame for a beginner novel? It's got to be in it. Yeah, I mean, I think we spoke about this last night. I was saying about how, you know, there's certain ways that you can go about writing anything. This goes to any writers out there. Um, And I kind of did it backwards in the sense that I kind of came up with this plot, this structure, and then kind of try to fill in the rest. So I was basically to sum this up for you, right? We've got two parts of the brain. One part is the creative part where you come up with all the ideas. And then the other part is like the editor the problem solver part of your brain, the logical side, the rational part of your brain. And I was trying to, for years, I was like doing both at the same time. This is before I was even writing this book, like when we're like 20 years old. And that is the worst thing that you can ever do because we, our ego, our pride is like, oh, I want to fix it as I go along. Never. If there's any writers watching this, don't ever do that. Just swallow your pride and just let the first draft be trash because it's going to be trash regardless. I forget which, uh, it might have been Oscar Wilde that said this. No, I think it was Yates. I think Yates said this. The first draft of anything is shit. <laughs> that's basically what he said. And um, so that's what, so it happens when it happens. You know what I mean? I'd get all these moments of writer's block and I'd sit on it for like two months, three months and go do something else, whether it be work related or getting high or hanging out with mates. But anyway, I'll give you the the, the blurb. So, David Miller is an amnesiac war veteran struggling to adjust to 2049's Port City. That's where he's living. And he starts to be, as he's putting the pieces back together again of his fractured past, his, you know, his memory and all that, an old friend from the war comes back and warns him that this war's not over and there's something inside his head, deep inside his head that the enemy are after. And that sort of kind of kicks it off. It's a science fiction, but it's more in line with a psychological thriller. Dystopian fiction. I'll tell you what, when I when I read it the first time, because I need to read it through again the second time, fully edited and stuff. But mm. first time I read it, obviously I get sci-fi vibes, because mm. obviously that's big inspiration. But when I was reading that, I got a really like, I wouldn't say noir, because it's not like a thriller. Mysterious, like, you, you, like when you're reading it, you're going to question a lot of things. Yeah, and exactly. Be- before and before the end, you're gonna know a lot of the answers to those questions. But thriller, sci-fi, thriller. I'd say it's more of a thriller in my eyes. Sci-fi, you get the sci-fi from the. Um... Well, funny enough, I'm not really. I love reading science fiction, but I'm not big on science fiction now that I'm older. I mean, we, you and I, both went through the same thing when we were in our late teens, early twenties. We on the Philip K. Dick bandwagon, the Richard Heinlein, Alfred Bester, you name it. We were all over it. 
But as I've got an older, before you, yeah. we go balls deep into something we love. That's the thing. Yeah, we just one track minded. Yeah. We 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 just go crazy for it. And but as I've gotten older, I've just focused more on characters rather than than just concepts. So there's very little sci-fi in it other than stuff that's relevant to the plot. Like you read a science fiction book and people might describe holograms or they might just describe new technologies that don't exist in present world. Whereas I kind of refrain from that. I just think it's more focused on character rather than description. But I mean, is that a, sorry, is that a subconscious thing for like the future? Say if it, say that, particular thing you described or explained or try to predict didn't, didn't come true it just doesn't age well does it yeah i mean you see that with a lot of things i mean i'll tell you a little bit of a segue funny enough right so i've been reading the book the forever war by joe holdman i think his name was so he was a vietnam veteran and he wrote in i think it was 1974 this book got published the forever war and it's a science fiction but it has a lot of um a lot of his experiences in the vietnam war is in there and because of this war they're fighting in interstellar space, because of uh, law, uh, what was it? Einstein's general relativity, you know, light speed and all that, you age slower than the rest of the world around you or the rest of the universe. So every time he's coming back, you know, 15, 20, 100 years has passed on Earth and he's still in his mid-20s. His parents are dead, everybody. He doesn't know anyone anymore. And one of the funny things that he, predict, that he predicted that he didn't predict right, well, he kind of got this right. But the way he, it, it hasn't aged well. It would come across as kind of homophobic. But he predicted when, when he first comes back from, from war, it's the year 2023, I think, right? And everybody's gay. <laughs> everybody's become, like one third of the whole population has become homosexual. And the character's completely uncomfortable. Even his mum's a lesbian by this point. And the reason why is because the population's reached like 9 billion. So, uh, is it the UN? They call it the UN. Well, it's the it's like the UN in our world, but it's like a, its own version of the UN. Basically, it's like the overseer of the whole world of all its of its affairs and the war and everything. And um, even his mum's they're trying to control the population, so everyone's becoming gay. And this character, his name's Willie William Mandela. He just can't comprehend it. And you're reading it now, and you're like, "Oh, that's not aged well." The way he sort of his... think about it right for a second, and how you've explained that. Everything is going gay. Everything is turning gay. Well, yeah, everything's becoming more... But this was 1974 when this was published. So, I mean, even in the 80s, the 90s, you know what I mean? The pe- uh, people who were gay were marginalized and True. people were bigoted against them. But whereas now it's changed. It's like, so you read it now, you're like, Whoa. you know, there's an Agatha Christie novel out there whose name I will not repeat, but <laughs> it's got an interesting name. It's got an interesting title if you can find it. Now it's called, and then there were none. But if you can go and Google and look up the original Agatha Christie, uh, and then there were none, original title, you know, for a little treat. That shit didn't age too well either. Um, but yeah, so anyway, to get to the point of the, the question that you were saying, um, yeah, it's not, I'm just not big on description. I'm more focused on character. And I don't like to go off on tangents about what's around them, the holograms or virtual reality, this, that, and the other. I just keep it to the point because it's like, I don't, it's not natural to me. You know, when I first started writing, I was inspired heavily by Stephen King. I'm reading Stephen King. I'm like, wow, I really like his style. But it didn't come natural to me. And it wasn't until I started reading Elmore Leonard and Chuck Polinick, based, They're defined as minimalist writers. They focus on the dialogue and they just focus on the story. Very little description at all. 
And that's how I write. You know what I mean? Because it's not about, I mean, it's up to you. There is no right or wrong on how you get, how you articulate yourself when writing, but you've got to do what's natural to you. And oh, fuck, what was I going to say? I've gone completely blank. Oh yeah. It's not about long, fancy sentences. It's use the most effective word possible to, to try and sum something, sum something up in one word rather than a sentence. Keep it tight. Keep so it clean. That's all I'm... Do you, do you write the way you read? Do you write as like, sorry, do you write the way that you read something? So is that how you would write something? Have, no. I, have I said that right? Have I said that like... I know what you're trying to say. No, I know what you're trying to say. Not necessarily. Like I'm, I'm pretty pretty chill when it comes to reading like you know i struggle with fantasy novels especially if it's like um it doesn't even have to be a fantasy novel but you know the types it's just this massive world building and that's not for me when i try and do world building i'll do it through very little subtle hints you know in in the book for uh, fauville you know the world starts to be slowly introduced around chapter three david is kind of uses his incentive to go to the library and read about the actual war he was in the atlantic war which is a war between um, the anarcho-capitalists and the democratic socialists of Deutschland. So that's kind of explained very briefly in the library articles, just to kind of sum up what was going on, the war he was in. And well, I want to make sure I don't go too down, down too many tangents so quickly, but very... Make sure you don't spoil anything either. I don't want to spoil anything either, yeah. But, um, you know, he, it gives you an idea of what the war was like, but I, I, I breeze through it very, very quickly without yeah. getting into the ins and outs of it it's like right you get the gist of it right there you go let's move on because you're there you don't you know what i mean when, yeah. I, when i'm reading it you're there you don't need to describe the world around you when you're there do you know what i mean exactly you know i i explained some of the logistics of it all you know so that way the reader can paint in the mind oh, all right so these are the bad guys and these are the good yeah. guys roughly or this is the side he's on versus the side against them and i'll, I'll go in but later on i'll go in more depth about you know, the inspirations behind those particular, that the war itself. And, but, you know, to, uh, to understand as well, when it comes to writing, you've got to be true to your characters. Now, some people explain, say that George R. R. Martin, I think is an example. He says that the writer, uh, the, the characters speak to him and that doesn't happen with me. And that's just never how it's been with me. You know, I'm kind of like a fly on the wall. If I get stoned and I uh, start thinking about a situation. Yeah, with, with the same way I, I'm, I see my characters speaking. I don't, I don't, they don't speak to me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You see them having a conversation, kind of like Pulp Fiction, you know what I mean? You see Jules and Vincent in the car talking about the diff cultural differences between America and, and Europe. They use McDonald's, this, that, and the other. So um, that's how I kind of see it, like a fly on the wall. And it's like, oh, what is this conversation? I mean, I've mentioned this before in a previous podcast, but Stephen King did a memoir on writing. This is back in like the year 2000. And he gives an example of Elmore Leonard's writing style. And he gives you an idea of how, how to write good dialogue. And he takes a little passage from the, the two, the, I don't know what year it came out, but it was the, the novel Be Cool. It's a sequel to Get Shorty. Get Shorty is a great book, by the way. But Be Cool is the sequel. And uh, it got made into a film with John Travolta playing Chili Palmer. And he takes this little bit of dialogue. And I can't remember it, how the dialogue goes. But Stephen King says, you know, if you sat at a restaurant and you overheard that conversation, wouldn't you want to keep listening? And I was like, that's how you write good dialogue that's how it's meant to be it's meant to intrigue people you don't want it to be stilted and convoluted and clunky it's an art form it takes practice and it took me years to get good at it because that's what mm -hmm. that's my priority is good dialogue so this is another unwritten rule of the podcast as well isn't it 
same, the podcast, same sort yeah. of rules. The art of good conversation, you know, because yeah. Chuck Polonick says it, you know, good stories, because we, we, we're very anecdotal with our, with our stories and our humour. Good stories don't leave people speechless. It leaves them competing. You know? Yeah, exactly. And we're, and we're always like, uh, bouncing off each guest and shit. Exactly. So. It's going to tell them to shut the fuck up one second. <laughs> there we go. It's all right. <laughs> Laugh, you forgot to mute the mic. All you heard was <laughs> shut the fuck. <laughs> nah, they're cool. They're cool. They're cool. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. But um, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like good conversation. A good stories leave, don't leave people speechless. It leaves them competing. Because, it's, you know, it's, um, it's something that I've developed only in the last few years, really, because I think it's about confidence and self-esteem to really have the courage to be in amongst a group of people and be like, oh, I'm going to have the courage to tell this story, not fuck it up, not stutter. It doesn't even have to be a joke. It's just, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like one-liners and this, that, and the other, but my own humor is kind of long-form yeah, yeah. and it's usually a self a self-deprecating so it's at my own expense and i don't mind i can laugh at myself like, we grew up in corby where you kind of had to have a thick skin yeah man you gotta fucking be able to take it yeah yeah and 100%. as i got older and started to really kind of be more comfortable in my own skin you know because well i'll go, go more in depth with this anyway as we as we go along because part of me growing up in my 20s is very crucial to uh the book itself the journey but um, yes, dialogue's important to me. Char- I love characters telling stories, you know, and there's plenty of it in a Fauville. And it's natural because it's based on conversations or I've either had myself with yourself or other friends or family, or it's based on conversations I've ever heard or someone, someone that's told me something. I'm thinking that's how you make characters real. Have them tell the story. It's based off experience, isn't it? It's like... Imagine, imagine, what was his name? Martin Scorsese directing a Steven Spielberg film. He couldn't, because no. Martin Scorsese has their his their films. You know what I mean? They have their own voice. Steven Spielberg. I mean, obviously Steven Spielberg hasn't gone flying around the jungle with a whip. He's an archaeologist, <laughs> but like, that's his vision. You know what I mean? It's not Martin well, Scorsese. But, do you know what I mean? It's, kind it's a bit of a segue, but uh, this is based. This actually happened not with Scorsese, but with Spielberg. So um, the, you're familiar with the 2001 movie Artificial Intelligence with Haley yeah, Osman. Yeah. That was meant to be Stanley Kubrick that, that made that movie. But really? He died in '99. Just well, as, as a sequel to a Space Odyssey, or just standalone? some film? No, it's based yeah. on a short story by some guy called Summer Toys Last All Year or something like that. Or Toys Last All. I can't remember what the name of the short story, but Stanley Kubrick wanted to make this and he'd be on the phone because him and Steven Spielberg were very, very close and they'd be talking about this film he had in mind, but he didn't want it. He was convinced, Kerbick was convinced that no human actor, young actor, child actor could portray David, the robot. So they tried to use prosthetics, but because it was the nineties, they just couldn't make it work. So he just kind of waited for the technology, but then sadly he passed away in 99, just as eyes wide shut, his last movie came out. So Stanley Kerbick said, uh, Steven Spielberg said, well, I'm going to make it then. And that's what he did. And I think it's a fantastic film. Oh, I need to go rewatch it, man, because I haven't watched that since I was a young man. But... Mm. And, um, you know, people complain about the movie saying it's quite inconsistent in its tone because obviously there's some bits that are Stanley Kubrick inspired and there's bits that are Steven Spielberg. Yeah. But Spielberg has gone on record saying that the, th- the bits of the film that people think that I did were actually Steven, were, were um, Stanley Kubrick, 
and the bits that they think were his because he's more darker in tone, whereas Spielberg was more family friendly for the most part. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually the other way around. That's so. crazy. I need to watch that. Is it worth watching? It's a great film. It's long. It's long. But it's, yeah. as an adult, you know, you really kind of think, wow, you know, it's a bit formulaic in certain parts. But, you know, you've got to bear in mind, it's the best we would have gotten because K- Kerbic died and Steven Spielberg tried his best to make his mate's movie, you know. <laughs> but um, so when it comes to characters, um, like I already mentioned about dialogue being an important thing, I have this thing, like I call it a writer's instinct. And I'm sure you've got it. And I'm sure there's plenty of other people. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be writer's instinct, but there's some form of gut instinct that we have as creative people where we just kind of know that something's wrong. And it doesn't even have to be with an creative endeavor. It can be walking down the street and you get that gut instinct. Like I need to fucking leave. You know, it's our second brain essentially, but I'll be writing dialogue with this book and immediately my gut instinct will be like, this is shite. Stop right now. Cross this out. And I would, and, because it just wasn't natural to the character. Yeah. And when it comes to characters, you know, you, I'm going to tell you the story about, so the main character is named David Miller, war veteran. And I'll, I'll take you way back to the beginning. So it was 2014. I was working at um, Haven Holiday Park as a, as a sports coach. And initially I was thrilled when I got Was the this job. the first time on your own when you nearly flooded the village or? No, nah, no, nah, that's, a- that, that was a year later, but I'll tell you about that too as well. So. Oh, okay. I'm just making sure. I'm making sure the timeline. Yeah, I'm not very good. I'm not very good at speaking in in linear, but I'll do my best on this part. So it's 2014. I'm 22 years of age. And I mean, I've been wanting to write since I was young. So I've always been trying. I wasn't very good for a long, long time, but the ambition was always there from a young age, as it was with you. Every time we're in English and they said, all right, write a story, be whatever you want. That was always my favorite part of English or literacy, as they called it back then. And I- You know what? Do you know what? All of English was my favorite. I think I just, you know, I mean, we've some certain times we fucked around. English and drama, we were, it was like a creative outlet. You know, it, yeah. it, we took a step back from the academics and we thought, oh, you know what? I'm just free to be who I, who, who let my yeah, imagination run wild. I didn't give a shit if I made a film myself or anything. I just wanted to fucking just mm-hmm. be free. Do you know what I mean? And act. That's and it. So act, we've always act, had that. Act. We've always had that in our heart from a young age. That's the point I'm trying yeah. to make. And I wrote a short story um, in 2006. And it got entered by my English teacher and it got entered into the Young Writers Award. And I won that award. And I'm not going to blow smoke up my own ass. Like, like, I'm sure there's like eight other kids in Lodge Park that also got published in that. So, you know what I mean? And it wasn't that great of a short story. I'm being honest. I've read it recently. But, you know, it was dope. Because again, I'll tell you the story. It was 250 words. So at that time, the Xbox 360 had just come out. And one of the launch titles was a game called Perfect Dark Zero. And in Perfect Dark Zero online, there is a game mode called Infection. So you've played this last year. When we were during lockdown, we did this. And in uh, Infection, say there's 30 people in the map. Four of those people will be infected. There'll be a skeleton and you can kill, you, you can kill them, but they'll just keep coming back. And eventually the game is over when everybody in the map is infected. Pretty good enough game for its time. And I wrote a short story based on the experiences of being the last person alive in the map, just trying to run out the timer. And the story was just called Infection. There's a guy inside like a cupboard, like in a subway. And there's dead bodies all over the floor. And there's these monsters on the other side just trying to get in, trying to boot the door down. 
And right next to him is like this corpse with a gun in its hand. And he picks up the gun, like a revolver, I think it was. And it's only got one bullet. And the, throughout the whole 250 word story is just his own decision-making, like, what do I do? What do I do? You know? And then the, the door breaks down and then it just ends with bang. You don't know whether he shot them or shot himself. And that, you know, pretty good for a 14 year old kid. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I use my experiences that adrenaline rush I got playing infection. To write like that concept there, concepts there. Yeah. I never read it, but like that's yeah. a fucking. You read it. You 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 storytelling like brains there. Do you know what I mean? That was the origin, and it would have sure. got fucking entered into a fucking thing if it wasn't yeah. that good. Yeah, I mean, and for your age, you know what I mean? It's for your age. Yeah, no but, one's gonna be fucking Stephen King when they're exactly, 12, 13, exactly. I mean. It wasn't exactly fucking D. H. Lawrence. It was very sloppy. <laughs> but you know what? But. But I still, you know, I still think, well, well done for. I like the, uh, you know, the, how I managed to connect the dots based on some something real to yeah. tell a story, right? So that was the beginning. So I'm 22 years of age and I'm working at Haven, um, a, a holiday park called Weymouth Bay. And at first, I was over the moon when I first got this job because before that, I was on my ass working as a temp. So it was just amazing to have full time work. But very, very quickly, I realised these sorts of vacation parks, holiday parks, are a pain in the ass. You basically like slaves are strong word, but you just basically you're you're just being thrown in there 50, 60 hours a week, maybe one day a week off if you're lucky. And I'm teaching archery, I'm teaching rifle shooting, I'm teaching this, that, and the other. And I'm six weeks into the job, weather's getting nice. And I just started walking around and I look around at these holiday parks and I notice you've got all these mobile homes and everything's look, looking pristine and utopian. It's like meant to be like a like a slice of paradise, if you will, you know, because we're all, the whole concept is, is that most people will be lucky, working class people that is, will be lucky enough to have one holiday a year. So Haven's trying to give people, sell people an experience, right? And I just started having, a, I had this epiphany where I'm like, this isn't real. This is all bullshit. Like there's a French philosopher named Jean Baudrillard and he talks about, postmodernism he talks about simulacrum and simulation he talks about how um you know it's really convoluted and complex but he basically talks about how uh, (laughs) (laughs) he's essentially talking about how a simula a simulacra is when something is imitating something that's actually real and is imitating a real and it's been given back to you to say oh this is real and it's like "No, no 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 that's an imitation that's not what you're, that's not reality. And that's what I saw because these um, groundskeepers are cutting the grass perfectly and every, all the slabs are laid perfectly. And it's this whole, it's, there's just selling a dream, but it's not a real dream. It's, it's on the other. And I came up with this idea. And I just, at the time I was like, I didn't get the fuck out of here. I mean, I managed to do the whole season, but in my, I just wanted to run away. And that's when I came up with the idea, not fully formed, but I came up with the idea of someone just trying to get out of a fake world, trying to get out of this, perfect presentation a bit like the Truman show a bit like the matrix and I spent about a month on it and it was about 7,000 words long so it was quite a long short story you know we're talking about a good 20 pages and it was just nice it was just nice to write this story and uh, this short story introduced the characters of David Hackby uh, Dr. Murray Spike you know I mean it introduced the characters that would be essential for the actual novel itself but for the most part the plot was a bit half-baked, but that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Not much characterization, but it wasn't until 2017 
that I um, left a well-paid job. Um, I was working for New Look Head Office. So uh, I was working as a French-speaking IT analyst and I did it for about 10 months. And we then, are not sponsored by New Look. We are not sponsored Just... by New Look. Fuck New Look. <laughs> <laughs> and this job... I'm just not built for office jobs. I'm a very proactive person, very creative. I need to be having conversations with people. I need to be like engaging in stuff that's not robotic. And you know what I mean? And one day I'm about nine months into the job and I'm working a Saturday and I look over to the project analyst department and I see that there's these celebration cards. One of them says 15 years, happy 15 years. One of them said happy 20 years. And the one next to that said happy 25 years. That's, so, that's someone that's, I was 24 at the time. Someone had been working for the company longer than I'd been alive. I'd been there for like nine, 10 months. I thought, I have to get out of here. I have to go. I went on this blog called Surf, Couch Surf. I think it was called couchsurf.com. All right. And What's that like a... It's like, like spare rooms. Just yeah, spare like rooms. Yeah, yeah. Basically just to sleep on someone's couch. So I put the message out there and I thought, I'm going to go to Bordeaux. Let's go to Bordeaux. I put it out well, you there. You can do it. You can walk. You can walk. So you could put USA in and you could have couch surfed in USA. Yeah. 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 I'd fucking do it now. I'm not doing it now, but like, that's a fucking. Cost a fortune to get there, but I thought, I've been to France before. So I was like, let's try. Let's try. So I put it out there. And this guy called Lionel gets back to me. Lionel Lornier. He's a character in the book. And he's like, yeah, I've got a place you can stay. 200 euros a month. I thought, 200 euros a month. That's like 180 quid. That's amazing. I had him yeah, a notice in. Deal. Yeah. I had my notice in a month later, I'm in Bordeaux. All right. And bearing in mind the 10 months I was working at New Look, I was creatively bankrupt. I had nothing. I had no ambition to want to write anything. I was barely reading. I just had nothing. I knew it was bad for my soul. So I bought a notepad on the off chance because in my head, I'd already written a couple of uh, two short stories based on the, what would be Fauville that explored some of the characters and some of the concepts, but I wanted to make it into a novel but I couldn't get into the head of David Miller, the amnesiac war veteran, because I thought about my dad, because my dad's a veteran and he's part of, or was part of Veterans for Peace. And one thing I found fascinating about him and the other veterans is that they, they tell a lot of anecdotal stories like we do. They mask their pain with humor. And I found that fascinating. So they'll do anything but talk about their emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's how I had to be true to the characters in this book. But I couldn't come up with, I couldn't make the character work because I wasn't a soldier. I wasn't a veteran, but I had my little JK Rowling moment, my Stephen King moment, whatever moment you want to call it. The light bulb went off when finally I'm walking through San Michel to go to the gym and I'm the only white face in this part of town and no one bothered me. It was great. And I'm listening to the doors. People are strange. And something occurred to me. I thought, well, I might not be a soldier. I might not be a veteran, but I'm the next best thing. I'm a foreigner. And that was it. I bought a bottle of red wine, got my notepad, got my pen, and just started scribbling away. And that was when the story began in February of 2017. Four months later, I had a first draft, about 33,000 words, which is only like, what, 110 pages? Again, the beginning's got to start somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. And I tell you what, I was so chuffed with myself. By any chance, was the name of that red wine Cathedral District? Oh, Red Cathedral. No, no, no. Right. So um, the the wine I was drinking over there was called was from a region just outside of Bordeaux called Saint-Emilion. 
it's a right. beautiful wine, beautiful wine. So I gave it a fictional name, just called it um, Red Cathedral, because I think uh, in San Emily you only have a. Is that what, is that what the uh, cathedral district in the book? That's why I brought that up because I read, I read that, I actually read that down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cathedral. It's just a, kind of a throwaway line, but yeah. Because, oh, okay. because between it took me four months to write the first draft, but it took me three years to write the second and final draft. You know, a lot changed. Because yeah, but of, that's good because you initially had the story there to go off. Exactly. There was there was no mention of really any mention of the war in the first draft. I didn't really elaborate on it at all. And then Stephen King says in his memoir, it's always good to have like two months break after your first draft. Just go do something else and then come back to it. So you've got a different mindset going into it. So yeah. that's what I'd done. But I'd come back to the UK and I was working back at Haven, funny enough, but now I'm 25 years old. So I've got a bit of a different attitude, easier to handle this job this time around. And minimum wage was better for 25 year olds back then. Whereas before when you're 21, you're getting like fucking six pounds an hour. Oh man, it's atrocious. You don't realize it. Yeah. So no, like no one tells you, everyone keeps a secret. It's like, yeah. So tell them until they're 25. It wasn't long till it wasn't one long. Once I turned 24, 25, the conservative party introduced the national working wage, whatever it's called, not minimum wage, working wage which is like now it's £9.50 or it's going to be £9.50. But anyway, so I'm spending two months just hanging out with some of the lifeguards, getting high. They introduced me to a lot of things I'd missed out while I'd been away from, from England. Black Mirror season three had just come out. Rick and Morty season three had just come out. And so I started on Black Mirror because I was a bit late to the party. And in season three, there's an episode called Playtest where there's this American backpacker just sort of running away from his um, from his mother or something like that. I don't know what's really, I can't really remember that well, but he ends up meeting up kind of like me with Lionel. Like he just kind of finds a place to stay and he meets up with this girl and she has a book, something called The Singularity. And I was like, what is that? And she describes it about as when machines become more intelligent than humans. And instantly I'm like, I need to get that book. That particular book I don't think exists. I think that was just used for the TV show. But I found a book similar to it by a man named Ray Kurzweil. And he wrote a book called The Singularity is Near in 2005. And that became one of the most important pieces of resources necessary for me to write the second and final draft of of the novel, which is heavily used in the early parts of the book. It kind of became the... You know, for one of the characters, Dr. Murray, I don't want to give too much away at this moment in time, but these machines are looking to evolve and they use words and phrases used from that book, The Singularity is Near, because that's what it became about. Let's write about artificial intelligence. There's this weird juxtaposition between David Miller's mental health and this artificial intelligence becoming more and more powerful in his mind. And it was great, great, two great things to just put together and see what happens with it. Cause it's fucking yeah, wacky, yeah. man. It's wacky as fuck. I have so many questions about Dr. Murray, by the way. Go for it. Is he like, he's not trying to help David, is he? It's weird because, right. I will give away this much, right? Cause it is very early on in the book that this revelation comes about, but. Yeah, try to speak in riddles. Cause That's I, don't wanna... I don't mind. All right, no, I won't give this away, but Dr. Murray, he's a very utilitarian character. He's very pragmatic, very sort of black and white. And he generally does want to help David, but he has a bigger 
he has a bigger cause that goes beyond uh, okay, okay. you know what I mean like because it's the idea was is that it's not so much that it subverts expectations but as the story goes along you think you have an idea because there's all these different writing styles all these different narrative styles but the one I use predominantly in the book is what's known as third person limited or POV third person limited means that you are in the mind of the character but it's being told through the third person so you you the the narration the the descriptions is really from the prejudice of that character mm-hmm. and because he's got amnesia the reader only figures out something when he david miller figures something out so you're constantly catching up alongside him and it takes i can tell you from experience in the four and a half years it took me to write the fucking thing you know it has to be done a particular way you know i mean it does take uh yeah, I get you. you well, that's, that, 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 that was a fucking oh, a, a choice you made to write in that fucking perspective. So. Exactly. I mean, 90% of the time I'm using third person limited, but occasionally when he writes his diary in chapter three, he writes a little diary in chapter seven. Um, I'm using first person because that was the only time, you know, going back to what I said earlier. Was about, that a genuine artistic choice to, to write like in that third person it was one I preferred and it was, it was most appropriate considering I'm talking about an amnesiac. I mean, I could have wrote in first, first person if I wanted to. No, but, but no, if it's for the story, I'm just saying like it must, that, that's why it must have took so long because to write in that style, fuck me. From what I understand, most new writers, new authors will write in first person. Um, yeah. But it just wasn't for me. I don't like first person. I do use first person very, very, like, not Cause often. No, because I narrate. I use third person, but the way you use it, I mean, because well, then again, my, none of my characters have amnesia, so. Mm. But then it like like me thinking about it now in my head, I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, it's got because 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 it's got to play on your mind every time you're writing. You got to write, Jesus, Daniel. Fair enough. Well, but to be fair, it was only really it was, you know, again, you know, in a lot of the, the reason why it took so long to, for me to write it, it wasn't just the story itself. It was, I was trying to learn how to write, you know, it, I was learning how my style and it wasn't really till about 2018, the two year mark that I started to consistently be like, right. I've been reading Elmore Leonard. I've been reading Chuck Polinick. I want to write like, not write like them, but in the same style. That's what most speaks to me. That's how I best articulate my voice. And to any writer out there, that's my advice to them is find the best way to articulate your voice. And that's oh, yeah, me. 100%. 100%. And you want to know how to write the way you want to write before you can start writing the project yeah. you want to write. I, I'd say anyway, because, yeah, I've always wrote, not always wrote in third person. I've sometimes wrote in first person, but third mm. person is what I landed on. And yeah, and there's different types of third person. You've got uh, third person limited, which is the one I use. There's third person objective, which is you're not really in the mind of any character. They're just sort of there, kind of like Agatha Christie. She uses that, you know, the whodunits sort of storytelling where you're not in the minds of any of the characters. The narrator is just sort of giving you an example. It's kind of, I can't think on the top of my head other than that Agatha Christie, Stephen King, maybe. Nah, he's a bit more third person POV. And then you've got the omniscient, omniscient narrator, which is like uh, Tolkien, you know, the narrator knows everything. Yeah. That's kind of my style, but not as detailed as Tolkien. That's it. Whereas I like to, because I'm a, because I'm a character writer, I focus on third person POV. But so going back to about my dad and the veterans, um, you know, again, I noticed their behavior, which was they were very funny. They were 
wise. They had a lot of they had a lot of wisdom in the way they spoke. But again, there was they were didn't really open the door emotionally. So I had to stay consistent to the character. And that writer's instinct did kick in every once in a while when every time I tried for David to open up emotionally, it didn't come off correctly. So I had to get rid of it. So I had to work around his trauma, his PTSD. And that's why we'll talk about Mr. Sandman in a second. So that's why I used the diary in chapter three and a little bit of chapter seven, because it was the only way I was going to be able to get him to openly you know, talk his emotions because he, he was incapable of yeah. o- opening up because of the trauma that he had experienced. And there's a big traumatic, there's a big trauma that's because he, he suffers with a, a disassociative identity disorder known as a psychogenic fugue, which is where someone creates a sort of alter ego in order to distance themselves from the, the pain, the trauma that they experienced and can have am- amnesia like effects as well as other other issues and that's the other character in the story spike i don't mind giving this away because it is pretty evident very early on in the book that this spike character who warns him that the war's not over and there's information in his head the enemy are after spike is actually just an extension of david sort of his rage his anger and as his memory starts coming back this sort of manifestation this rage within him starts to come out of him and it was such so interesting to write because it had a lot of similarities to my own situation, my own relationship with my dad, because my dad's called Spike. But the Spike character in the novel isn't necessarily a carbon copy of my own dad. It's, it's more the essence. I think this goes back to Jordan Peterson. He talks about, well, not even just Jordan Peterson, but Carl Jung talks about what's known as the archaic man. The archaic man is the, is sort of this beast within us that consists of our lineage, our heritage, going way back to 100,000, 150,000 years ago. We've inherited that DNA from all those different life, lifetimes through our, you know, through our genetic makeup. Mm-hmm. And we have that within us. And, you know, we kind of, this is quite deep what I'm saying here. And it's kind of the first time I've really openly spoken about it. But, you know, me and my dad have, a lot of similarities, good and bad. You know, we're both very sociable, gregarious. You know, we're both very looking to put a smile on people's faces. But we also have like, and more so him as well, like this kind of rage, this kind of contempt for certain things and certain. And the story really was my way of saying, I'm going to try and be my own man because I'm nearly 30 years of age now. And it's like, okay, I'm going to be my own person now. As David tries to say to his alter ego, I'm going to be my own man. I don't want this rage in me anymore. I want to be me because I grew up with my dad suffering with PTSD from the ages of four to eight years of age. And this is even said in the novel. I I was raised primarily by my father for those first, for those four years. And um, he did a good job. He was good. He taught me to be tough. He taught me to be intellectual. You know, he was always getting me to learn about geography and space and anatomy you know, from a very young age. So I was fucking, that's where a lot of my knowledge comes from is based on his upbringing, say, encouraging me to just fucking, you know, absorb everything. And, but then because of his PTSD, because of his certain life choices, he went off the rails when I was about eight years of age. And um, I went back to my mum's and I kind of watched him deteriorate over the next 10 years. 
And but luckily he turned it all around and got his treatment and did all right. And when I was about 19 years of age, this was just after he got the all clear with his hepatitis C, me and him go to Glasgow. And for the first, uh, and we went to a place called Loch Awe and we're skimming stones. Loch Awe is a beautiful place in Scotland. You've got like these tall mountains and we're skimming stones and all that. And we, we essentially had our first conversation as men and it was really, really profound. And that was when the next part of our relationship began after that sort of 10 year weird hiatus. And I explore a lot of that in metaphor in the book, you know, David Miller's re uh, relationship with his own father and his, therefore his relationship with this hypothetical version of himself. I hope I'm not being come across as too convoluted, but um, in philosophy, they talk about the Ubermensch. I think it was Frederick Nietzsche that talks about this, this hypothetical version of ourselves that consists of all our highest ideals. That's where religion comes from. That's where God comes from. It's like, Oh, this is what I wish to see in myself and in the world. And that's kind of like what Spike is to David, but in a kind of fucked up way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a, it's a fucking, I don't know. I'm, I hope I'm explaining it well enough. But, you know, it's, it's David says to his own father in the book, because his father crops up in flashbacks and his name's never specified and his face is never revealed. But in the few interactions that they have, David says to his father, like, I always wanted to be just as smart as, as strong and as intelligent as you. And uh, his dad says to him, I am proud of you, son, but don't be like me, be your own man. And that's what my book's trying to say about me. Now that I'm 29 going on 30, I'm like, right, this book is my way of saying, right, I'm past these moments of, of being lost and running around trying to find my purpose, whether it be going to France or working all these different jobs. And it's like, no, no, I'm happy in who I am now. I'm my own man now. I'm ready to move on to the next chapter of my life. All right, then. So let me ask you this. So how you've described it there, how, how would you want someone to take that as they're reading it? Obviously, because that, that's, pers that's, per that's personal to you. Mm. If someone's reading that, would they feel the same? Obviously, they're not going to think of you and be like, oh, that's Dan. You know what I mean? They're going to think of their self and do you know what I mean? Do you yeah. they'll feel the impact of that? I think so, because like, again, we always, not, I mean, not everyone's fortunate enough to have their parents in their lives. You know I mean? Yeah, we, me and my dad had a bit of a tumultuous relationship for that 10-year period, but it was never, I still, he was still there. He was still there. It's yeah. just that he was dealing with his own demons and, um, and it worked out fine. In the end, he, he found himself again. John Lennon, broke up with Yoko Ono for about 18 months and John Lennon went off the rails for just got hammered for 18 months. And he called that his lost weekend. And essentially that's what my dad went through for nine years. He went through his own lost weekend and it wasn't until he came back out of his head. Um, what's the treatment? So, cause he had hepatitis C, but he had the treatment um, interferon. It was called. He had the interferon treatment and that got rid of the disease and he's all good now. And thank God, because he'd be dead by now if he hadn't. And we got to, you know, re, uh, have another go at our relationship and, and sort of, I forgave him and he forgave himself and we sort of moved on from that. But it really depends because the reader's going to take from it what they will take from it. They might just take it at face value or they might see a relationship with their own parents or their own father because that's what it boils down to. It's like we... Spike represents not my dad, but the Spike character in the book is basically the, the personification of 
all of David's trauma and rage. He, he, like this, rev, this revolutionary that exists in him that he wants to change the world. Spike says to David in a flashback in chapter five, after something horrific happens, Spike looks back at David and says, take a, look, take a good look around you, David. This world is evil. And as a means of surviving it, so are we. And that kind of really encapsulates Spike. You know, we aren't the good guys. We're not the good guys. But it's the world that's evil. And therefore, so are we as, a, as an instinct. You know, he wants to burn it all down. Spike, David, wants to burn the system to the very ground. And you see that being demonstrated as the story progresses as, as the artificial intelligence becomes more powerful. It kind of, it kind of molds with David's trauma. Like I said, the juxtaposition between his decline in mental health and the growth of this artificial intelligence. A lot of people who haven't read the book that will be listening to this will be like, what? But then they'll read the book and come back to this and it will make a lot more sense. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it's that's weird that's, like, the, sorry. that's a good thing about doing this, isn't it? Yeah, and the thing as well is like, I've never actually gone to this much length to, to, to fully articulate like the process. And again, you know me, I'm not good with structure. I like to just sort of bounce from point to point in no particular order and just hope for the best, you know? Because I'm not going to edit any of this. I'm just going to fucking put it out there. That's the thing and it's good. That's Fucking, you're gonna grill me when I fucking do mine. So exactly, there you go. So um, I'll, I'll look. So, I'll, so when it comes to the story itself, when it goes on about the Atlantic War, so anarcho. So one of the things I want to talk about is anarcho-capitalism. For those who don't know what that is, it's a it's a political theory, a sort of philosophical theory. It's a society with no state, no government, no laws, no regulation. It is run purely by private enterprises and free trade. And people so, might so like that um, place in Hong Kong. Oh, the, um, yeah, the city of Anarchy, which was um, Kowloon Walled City. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. Because again, I'm not trying to predict anything, but it's quite scary what I'm seeing happening now, this year and last year. Well, what's going on in the world? I've seen what's happening in America. What's going on now? It- well, I'm not going to go into too much details, but I'll tell you what I see in America. You know, you've got this big split down the middle between. The, the reds and the blues, the Democrats and the Republicans, and the Republicans themselves are very, what's called libertarian. They're all about individual sovereignty. And anarcho-capitalism is a more extreme version of that libertarian mindset. So for a long, long time, I was really struggling with the middle part of the book. I already had an idea of what was happening, but I couldn't, I didn't have the, the glue, the foundations that would help me run with it. Because once you might experience this and anyone else watching this might experience this, but you have an intention of something you want to write, but you keep putting it off. It's not because you're lazy. It's not because you can't be asked. It's because you haven't really got something there to run with. And I always need something real that I can run with to use that as the basis for the fictional story I'm going to tell. So I come across the idea of anarcho capitalism. I'm thinking, right, what? I need to look more into this. And I came across a book by um, a man named J. Michael Oliver called New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism. And it basically breaks down this philosophy. And that is kind of the driving point behind the Americans in this book. It's not about countries or borders. It's about a whole ideology. So in my book, I describe that anarcho-capitalism spread to three quarters of the world. And the only part of the world that isn't anarcho-capitalist is Europe, which I call the Democratic Socialists of Deutschland, which is a socialist technocracy. And that consists of Europe and Southern England. 
And that's the side that David's fighting on. He's from Southern England. So he was fighting against the invaders, the ANCAPs. And the ANCAPs, the Americans. Yeah, the, well, not even just Americans, but for the most part, yeah. But they're portrayed as American, but it's three quarters of the world, anarcho capitalism. It's just whole societies with no state, no government, no, not necessarily they don't have leaders. They do have leaders, but instead of having presidents or prime ministers, an anarcho capitalist society would consist of CEOs and, you know, I mean, business owners and shit. Exactly. Because it's all about free trade. And people would ask the question, well, how does, how would you have a functioning society? If there are no laws, well, they technically do have laws, but they, they it's based on a the epistemology. Is that what they call it? The philosophy of it is known as objectivism, which comes from a Russian American named Anne Rand. And she describes it as the only laws are, are objective laws. Like gravity is an objective law. It cannot be disputed. You jump off your roof, you're landing on the floor. That's an objective law. All right. So let's say, for example, right, you live in a society with no state. And you want to sell coffee beans. Technically, there's nothing stopping you, right? You want to go sell coffee beans, go sell coffee beans. The problem is in a free market, a hundred thousand other people are going to be selling coffee beans. So what do you do to be the best at making, selling, distributing coffee beans? Well, use my secret ingredient. Secret ingredients, and not just that, but it's within your best interest to be a <laughs> to have to be a morally good person, not based yeah. on any constitution, not based on any law but based on your own best interests to put a roof over your head and sell those fucking coffee beans. Oh, Sean's great. He's a really nice guy. I really like his ethics. You know what I mean? Yes, that secret flavor in that coffee bean is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you would govern yourself. Yeah, I get you. Because it's yeah. within your own best interest. If you fuck people over and you stop being an arsehole, no one's going to buy your coffee beans. That's how well, capitalism works. I was oh, I can't remember what video I was watching yesterday, but this guy was talking about it like, because he buys a lot of Pokemon cards in cases sealed and shit. I know it's nerdy as fuck, but he was, and he sells a lot. And he was saying like, I sell my products sealed as if, as if I would want to buy them because you wouldn't want to get fucked over yourself. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, do good things, good things. I know it comes back to karma and all that shit, but it's just the same type of exactly. thing. People of think that, oh, laws exist because we need them. It's like, no, no, no. We all have our own morality. Would you, you say karma is the same as gravity? Or do you reckon karma is just like fairy bullshit? Not necessarily, because you know you can actually see karma exist as a as an actual thing in the sense that you do something bad to someone else and they do something bad to you. Is that karma? That's cause and effect, right? Yeah. So in that sense, karma exists. Yeah, it it exists. It exists in a cause and effect manner. But um, yeah. So, but again, like I gave you a very kind of not necessarily convoluted, but quite a a dense explanation of anarcho capitalism. Then some people would say karma karma is like governed by faith yeah so faith that's more of a pre-modernist sort of mentality whereas you know objectivism and anarcho-capitalism and libertarianism that's sort of more focused on modernism so modernism is more my kind of thing uh, i was reading a book by a man named stephen hicks i think his name was it goes back called... to the science first faith question doesn't it well yeah so for the longest time so I'll break it down for you, right? So you've got pre-modernism, modernism, and post-modernism, right? So pre-modernism is... What, what about metamodernism? Is that... <laughs> Sorry, Karen. Pre-modernism Shut consists of tradition. It consists of faith. And it consists yeah. of... I forgot what the third thing was. But you know what I mean? It's like you are not in control of your own life. Something else is. So for a long, long time, that's how we functioned as a society. 
it's like there's this hierarchical structure above us that's like this is you know original sin god's will right yeah that's how a lot of people went about their day mysticism faith tradition but then you had someone people i want to say the 17 1800s you started to get people along the lines of francis bacon uh rennie desecrats and john locke they were sort of the founders of modernism they were the philosophers who said no, no 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 it's not about god it's about us we use reason to traverse this reality to understand this reality and that's kind of you know the origins of what would become you know um objectivism and libertarianism you are you know, responsible it's for fucking yourself. ironic as well now i've just realized it that's probably ain't gonna make much sense to you as well but there's a character in law school john locke right and he is in the beginning he's all about faith and like everything that's happening on this island is happening because of like something out like do you know what i mean yeah and then you've got the other main character called jack and he's all about what the john Locke you've described about fucking reason. man science reason he's a doctor he's fucking you're gonna fucking love lost mate i tell you i can't wait to watch it we'll, we'll be doing a <laughs> reaction when you're in the when we got the studio when you're down here oh, yeah so maybe that john Locke's based on the john Locke in philosophy the the, the, the sort yeah, of because as as lost unfolds it, it like john yeah, Locke becomes it, more like the john Locke that he's based on the modernist. Not, re- not really. Right. The, the the Jack becomes more like the John Locke in the show. Right, I got it. Yeah, he yeah, he yeah. starts becoming more of the faith. Yeah. And then John Locke starts becoming more like... Yeah. So, I don't want to... No, 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 it's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. But yeah, so that, again, I've given quite a dense explanation of, you know, libertarianism and objectivism and all that. It's not like that in the book. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sprinkled here and there because it's all about, for me, it's all about subtext, going back to dialogue. I want to make sure that you know let the let the characters explain their version of what they think's going on in the world. Oh yeah, I'd, you know? I'd say like it's sprinkled with like inspirations, but there's no outlying like yeah, because ex- you know what I mean genre. When, when you when it comes to exposition, you've got to be very very careful because me in the early days, you know, like anybody, you just sort of do an exp- what we call an exposition dump, just a narrator yeah. explaining everything. And that's not a good way to tell a story because, again, the golden rule of storytelling is show, don't tell. So throughout this four and a half year period, I was learning how best to put exposition in there without, without it making it look like exposition. Inception yeah. does it very, very well. And I'll tell you how Inception does it well. We've already explained this in previous podcasts, but um, it's, a, it's a very complicated plot device of dreams and navigating shared dream universes, right? So they have a character called Ariana. And Ariana is the new the new person. And so she's asking all the questions. She's essentially the stand-in for the audience. And you're getting all these exposition dumps, but it's done very clever. It's done in a very clever manner. Mm. Where it's not just like a narrator. It's like Don Cobbs explained to Ariana as she's figuring out. She is a stand-in for the audience. And I didn't do it necessarily in the same way, but two guys will be in a pub having a conversation. And one guy is a journalist and he's explaining what the anarcho-capitalists are within chapter six. He's explained to Hackby about, oh, you know, these are what they believe in. They believe that the state, the government is oppressing the human spirit of liberty along those lines. I'm just paraphrasing. And that kind of gives audience an understanding of what anarcho-capitalism is because they're introduced to it in chapter three and they're going to have questions and it's slowly kind of not explained, but just kind of spoken about throughout the story. Yeah. And the consequences, what we call externalities, the cause and effect, the negative consequences of, certain things 
in, in, in politics or in, in the world without it being crammed down people's throats. It's just sort of half-baked conversations of what, how they perceive the world. It's the best way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And I think I nailed it for the most part to the best of my ability of trying to explain complicated parts of the story in casual conversation between characters. Yeah. I think you did a good job, my friend. I appreciate it, mate. But, um... Well, you know, I, I'm... I'm I don't want to sit here and kiss your ass. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be the intermediary interviewer, aren't I? Well, that's it. And, you know, more than anything, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to just giving it for my friends and family first to... Let me just put this on Do Not Disturb. It's my girlfriend, bless her. She's a lovely lady. And she's been great during this process. She's really helped. She always gave me outside perspective when I was passing by plot points to her. And she'd be like, well, why not make that character a woman instead of a man? And it would change everything. It would change the dynamic. So she was great during all that. So thank you, Rachel. You're amazing. Um, what else is I going to go on to? But um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to my friends and family reading this book and seeing what they take from it. And eventually then seeing what strangers think of it when they buy it. Um, you know, my... Whose whose opinion matters most or does it not matter? It doesn't really matter because I'm happy with it. I can honestly just take a step back and be like, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And it's my first book. I'd say there's a difference between being happy that it's done and glad that it's done. See, if you're glad that it's done, I don't think like then you, you would have cared that much. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not glad it's done. I was actually kind of sad. Not like really sad, but I was just, I was relieved at the same time. I was like, oh, that's it. You know what I mean? But it's my first book. So, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm only 29 years old. You know, that's quite young in, in terms of a writer. Writers can, you know, as an athlete, as an athlete, 29 is getting on a bit. But as a writer, I can go on till I'm 70, 80, as long as my mind's functioning. I'm telling you, 40, 40, 40 is the new athletes retiring. Look at Ibrahimovic and Ronaldo True. on that moment. True. But even then, that's 10 years away. So that's your 10 years can go quick. You look at the 10 years for us. Yeah, but then um, now, I'm going to say like 50 is going to be the new retiring point. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Soon, we're, like we're 10 years time. Hormone therapy, TRT, HG, human growth hormone, you name it. You know, it's adding 10 years onto people's youth. And, Roids, no, well, steroids. I'm not even, I wouldn't, I haven't taken them, but I'm not against them. Like if, it's, if done correctly, it can be very beneficial if done correctly. I mean. If done with a, a licensed physician. <laughs> if you have the money. You know what I mean? If you're just some prick on the street just taking steroids off some dealer, you're going to have What about some... those dudes that get fucking like plastic surgery to have like beastie six packs and pecs and that? Do you reckon that's scum of the earth? I wouldn't. I mean, it's unfortunate. I'd say that much. I mean, that's we already... just really lazy though, isn't it? It you is have lazy. that amount of money. Why don't you just pay a exactly. personal trainer and get ripped as fuck? Exactly. Naturally. Women can't have a, can't choose how their breasts are naturally. So I completely understand why they would get breast augmentation or, or boob jobs. I completely support them in that regard. But with men with fake abs or even women with fake abs or just fake muscles in general, there's no need for it. There's no, unless all you've right, got. All right, let me ask you this question then. What about someone so insecure about their calves and they got fake calves? Would you condone that? No, because again, it's so easy to get good calves. All you got to do is calf raises and plyometric exercises, you know, <laughs> jumping squats. You can develop the calves. Just take a little bit of time out of your day for the whole right, day. What about? I don't want to name drop here because it ain't that sort of podcast. So, I remember a guy from school who had FA Cup ears, and he and he he wanted to get you know an ear. What's yeah. what's the what's the technical term for getting your ears? 
payback or whatever. I don't know. Oh, I know you mean like the big holes. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, just no. The big, yeah, like. What oh, ideas? Right. Did he get his ears pinned back? I didn't know that. No, I'm, I'm just saying. What, what if someone like that decided to get plastic Weird. surgery? You know what's funny, right? This, this ties into like what we were just discussing about this whole libertarian mindset. It's like fucking do what you want. You are an individual. You do what you desire. As long as you're not harming anyone else, fucking it's go like, for it. People, like my mum, for example, she'll ask why I've got a hole in my ear. I don't really know how to describe it. Yeah, some 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 sort of fashion, like following. Yeah. I, I think, but why, like, why do most my, people do? My answer is always, oh, it's for my ancient ancestor brethren. <laughs> why does anyone do anything? <laughs> Mostly for aesthetics re- reasons, really, for the most part. Yeah, true, man. Why like, do you, I uh... just woke up one day and wanted to get piercings? You know, what I mean, it's just it was just yeah. a spare of the moment thing. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a fucking be all and end all life decisions. You know what I mean? Just yeah. a fucking yeah, yeah, exactly. Superficial at the end of the day, isn't it? It's just, I don't know. Mm. By the way, I want to go back to something that we'll talk about earlier about future predictions. Um, we were talking about um, the sort of divide between America with the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, you've got the sort of authoritarian Democrats who rely on the state to oversee their decision making, and the libertarians see that as a sort of infringement on on being human we should totally have tim warner and right now for this discussion i know but he'll go off on one so not, not yeah no, we'll, can't, we'll catch can't up with him again soon yeah. but um yeah can't. so i see today i mean the book takes place in 2050 or 2049 it starts off roughly but i see it playing out already in 2021 you know the americans are essentially could well be overthrowing their own government in favor of a stateless society if the republicans fight back it could be a civil war i'm not i don't really go in i don't mention civil war in my book but this is just in my own head i could see that being potentially the birth of of anarcho-capitalism like you would have thought that after the kyle rittenhouse thing but nothing really happened that's only the beginning though and that was, I don't want to go into too much details because we all know what our opinions are on that. And that's just the beginning. That's just like, right, cool. That that just goes to show you can defend yourself now, even if it is a hairy situation. No one should have to die that day, but it happened the way it happened. We know the truth because I followed the case very, very closely. See, when you watch that video back as well, someone tried to fucking like drop kick him while he was on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Man? I hate anything, right? Have a fair fight, yeah, whatever. But if someone's on the floor, never fucking stand like someone standing on the head. Oh man, that fucking but yeah, riles, that really riles my fellas. Based on based on how we feel about the world today, I think if there is any hope, it's the Americans, the Republicans. I'm not saying I necessarily am a Republican. I'm not, but I'm not left wing either. I'm not a socialist. I'm not authoritarian. I'm a middle right leaning libertarian by definition. I am all in favor not all in favor because if we were to become a stateless society tomorrow, a lot of people would suffer and it would, it would take a long time for it to correct itself. It would take a long time for human nature to sort of balance itself out because you've got to bear in mind if everything became anarcho-capitalist tomorrow, that means there'd be no state. So people who depend on state benefits, people who are generally not just leeching off the system, people who are generally ill, due to no cause of no fault of their own. It'd be them that suffers. 
Mm-hmm. And the anarcho-capitalists argue, well, you know, there would be private charities. Yeah, but not tomorrow. That'll take a little while for, you know, altruism exists in capitalism. Altruism being, you know, doing something out of the kindness of your heart with no, without seeking any return. That would exist through private charities, but it would take a while for it to emerge and people would die. People would die. There'd be no NHS. It'd all be private. And it'd be the survival of the fist. And a lot of those negative things I've just pointed out are demonstrated in the book. It's a possibility at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, but I do see that it could well be a civil war. This, not in the book, in, my, in, in reality. I could see there being a civil war of some sort of emerging in America in the next couple of years. And it, it's either going to go one way or the other. And if it goes that way, then that means anarcho-capitalism could be the next thing that happens. And it could well is that be... Why you, is that why you chose like 2049 as a date? Yeah, 2049. Yeah. I, I don't know why I chose that year. I can't even remember. That goes way back to the first drafts. It was just a year. Maybe because Blade Runner was around the corner. The sequel to Blade Runner was around the corner. And I just thought, you know what? I like that year. Because I wanted the main protagonist to have been born, be a baby by the time as the story has been written. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because what they were born into this crazy world that I've created. And, you know, 2018, David Miller, technically he, the story begins in 2049 and he is 31 years old. So that means he was born in 2018, you know, and how much has the world changed already since 2018? Fucking a lot. Crazy, man. You know what I mean? And anyway, so there was a few things I did, did kind of predict just out of mostly satire and humor. But later on in the book, and this doesn't give anything away, this is a story within a story. I wrote a short story called Ding Dong, right? And the reason why, I, like, just to, by the end of the second act, there are two characters, David Miller and Hackby, and their arcs are kind of pretty much covered. So I wrote myself into a corner and I was like, oh, fuck, I still have a third of this book to write. And I don't know what to write about because the, char- the main characters, for the most part, these characters, their stories, their, their, their arcs have kind of, come to an end so there's nothing more to really write about there is another character but people figure that out as they read it when they read the book so i had to take it in a different direction for those for that last third and what happened was i had writer's block this is 2020 i had writer's block for a good five six months really trying to figure out where do i take the story from here and i was watching an episode of black mirror and i was on season four and it was an episode called black museum and the premise of the episode is, is that this lady is in the middle of the desert and there's a museum and a guy comes along, the proprietor or the curator, whatever his name is, is called Roland. And he says, oh, not many people come around here. And he goes in and inside the museum, it's called Black Museum. There's all these sort of art things encased in glass. And uh, something went off in my head and I thought, I'm going to do that. Not necessarily the same objects, but the same set and have someone walk someone through a museum and point at all these different objects and that each of those objects tells its own story like, like an anthology so i came up with my own version of it and one of them was a doorbell the smart doorbells that you, you, we get today the rings mm-hmm. my version was called ding dong so i had a lot of fun with this particular short story it's only about six pages long but ding dong it goes back to a couple of years after our present let's say 2023 i don't specify the year specifically but i do hint at and this was just after the George Floyd protest that I wrote this short story, where you started to see a mass exodus 
of people leaving a lot of the blue states like California, like New York, a bit like what Joe Rogan did. A lot of people left to go live in the red states like Texas, like Florida, like Tennessee. So I described that, but not everybody had the means of leaving these decrepit, decrepit communities. And there's this one woman named Lily and Lily was a school teacher, but now redundant because the part of the U S that she's living in has gone to shit. There's vagrants outside, rioting, burn the place down and she's stuck. And one day a representative comes to the door saying, Oh, I'd like to offer you a service. There's part of a trial period. Here's my card. She reads the card and it says something about ding dong. And it's essentially a doorbell that is connected via satellite connected uh, that would, um, that connects to a private police firm. Because again, going into anarcho-capitalism, when there's no state, there's no state police. And it kind of falls in line with the whole hashtag defund the police that was going on last year with the George Floyd thing. So in my made up future, there is no more police to defend the community. So now up and coming private firms have come to take their place and it's connected to this doorbell service. And she doesn't have to pay a penny for it because she'd be essentially part of a trial. And she immediately signs up for it. So the installation team comes along and fits the doorbell for her. And they say, oh yeah, the operator is a man named Marshall. He's a real gentleman. He will look after you. And off, he, off the guy goes. And Lily starts hitting off very well with Marshall. She can't see him. It's just a voice from the doorbell. And they start to form some form of weird, not necessarily an intimate relationship, but they start opening up to one another, disclose their deepest secrets and insecurities. But Marshall starts to get a bit too attached, almost. And Christmas comes along and she's depressed because the whole family are gone. And she used to be quite um, not resentful, but she was just frowned upon Christmas. Just thought it was all commercial bullshit. But now because her family's gone, she's distraught. She's like, I can't spend another Christmas on my own. And the next day, Marshall says, Lily, is everything all right? No response. So she, Marshall sends a couple of representatives to go check her out. She tried to take her own life and they take her to hospital. Luckily, she survives. And when she comes back a couple of weeks later, Marshall was like, you need to upgrade your privileges so you can have cameras installed all around the house. Lily says, that's a bit fucking too Orwellian for my liking. But eventually, Marshall wears her down and she eventually gives up and says, fine, whatever. Anyway, so the whole vagrant situation starts to calm down a little bit. Like I said, with the anarcho-capitalism, it starts to, human nature starts to balance itself out. And people start moving back into the cul-de-sacs and the communities. And there's a man named Derek from across the street that moves into the, to the home and introduces himself and him and Lily start hitting it off. But meanwhile, Marshall is listening in on the conversation. A couple of weeks later, Derek says to Lily, come, come have a drink with me. Let's go out for a date. She's like, okay, fine. But Marshall's like, I don't approve of this. You know, it's not safe out there. I'll do, you know, just to warn you, I'll do whatever it takes to, to ensure the safety and well-being of the client. And she's like, whatever, and goes out with Derek. They come back midnight, fumble around and, you know, have sex. And Marshall was watching the whole time. Derek goes off to work the next day, leaving poor Lily alone with Marshall, who's just lecturing her, saying, this isn't safe. I don't approve of this. I will do whatever it takes to ensure your safety and well-being. She's like, you're fucking crazy. And she goes to cancel the service. But the, uh, the representative on the phone says, if you cancel before the trial period's up, you'll have to pay back all of it. And she's like, well, how long do I have to wait? And the representative says, about six weeks. And Lily's like, fuck me. She, she contemplates packing an overnight bag and staying at Derek's, saying that she's getting a hard time from a doorbell. 
That's how I wrote it in the book. <laughs> but then she decides not to. She's like, fuck it, six weeks. I can handle this doorbell operator. It'll be fine. But the next day she wakes up and sees that Derek's being dragged away out of his house, thrown into the back of one of these private police vans. And he's screaming, I'm being framed. It wasn't me. I'm being framed. The lady freaks out, puts her shoes on and goes to get out the door and it won't, it won't open. It's locked. Marshall says, I'm sorry. It's not safe outside. She freaks out, grabs a chair to throw out the window and it triggers the house into a full lockdown. Six weeks later, some of the um, Ding Dong representatives come to the house and notice it's in full lockdown. And they ask Marshall, what, what's going on here? Marshall doesn't respond. So they override the system and go in and they find Lily in the kitchen dead. There's no food left in the house. And she's chewed into a candlestick, laying on a bloated purple hand. The twist of the story is, is that Marshall was not even human. He was a new type of artificial intelligence designed to basically placate those who had grown weary of automation. So they thought the doorbell, the, the company behind the doorbell said, well, let's try and create an operator that was so convincing that people would naturally assume it was human, but it was almost too human. And you're in part of the book, you, you can spoil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that short, that's only a six page short story, about one of the characters explaining to about the doorbell. And he said, it's in it. It's a romance story. And the girl was like, who's, with the guy said a romance story and he goes i'll be a very tragic one at that and tells the story <laughs> you know what i mean so that doesn't fucking sell the book i don't know what will <laughs> but the whole book itself is about 205 pages that's in manuscript i don't know what it'll be in physical but 205 pages that's six pages out of the whole book and that's just a character telling a story so when like when are you, are you not are you not saying a release date yet now? You know? It will be it ninety percent likely going to be December unless something goes wrong. But everything on my side's done. The cover's done. Um, unless the printer fucking sets on fire. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know <laughs> the guy. Wood. Well, like I said, once the printer's done what he's done, I'm also going to be releasing it on as an ebook on Amazon, and hopefully the Amazon paperback copies are good quality because I'll also be doing that as well. It'll be available on Amazon primarily. And I'll be having 50 books printed that I can sell to people signed. I'm selling at £8.99. I think the ebook's going to be £6.99 or £5.99. I haven't decided yet. But um, yeah. and People are going to want that artwork, you know. Oh, the artwork's amazing. It's done by a man named Stephen, Stefan Martinier. So the story with Stefan is, is that he, I first stumbled upon his work with David, um, David Louis Edelman. David <laughs> Lewis and Edelman. Edelman, that's actually. It. He wrote a book called Infoquake, and on Infoquake is a beautiful artwork. They say never judge a book by its cover, but sometimes you just have to. <laughs> and Stefan Martinier's artwork was on the front cover, and it was beautiful. And a couple of years later, I was about twenty at the time. I thought, oh, I want to look at some of, more of this guy's artwork, and I was blown away. And eventually, bought um, one of his paintings or one of his drawings, which is now the front cover of my book. It's called Memory, and it. Coincidentally, it looks a bit like me in the picture, even though this thing was done back in 2007. It looks a bit like me and my dad. I thought that's perfect. Crazy. One half of his face is sort of in shadow. And I thought that just fucking sums up everything that I want to say about the book just in the cover. Because this is a man tackling his own demons in amongst this high concept idea of artificial intelligence and singularity and, you know, anarcho capitalism. 
Meanwhile, you've just got this character dealing with his fucking demons. And um, so I contacted Stefan about a month ago and I said, look, I would like to hire you. You remember, because we, we were corresponding back and forth during the time Total Recall 2012 had come out, come out and we we're fanboying over it. And uh, he said, look, it's going to cost you like three to five grand, but you're more than welcome to just purchase some of the secondhand rights to one of my pre-existing pitches. So I had a little look and I thought, boom, that's the one, the one that's on my wall. I want that. So I purchased the rights and I happened for five years. If the book does well and it gets to five years, I'll do it again. There you go. Wasn't too expensive for five years. Pretty good. And even did me a little solid and gave me the rights to the ebook as well. So win-win. And that's it. And it's worth it at the end of the day. It's, it's another part of like, what's the word I'm looking for? The fucking stone brain. Um, organization, the organization of coming up to the release, like artwork, cover, book, paperback ebook like you've got it all covered like yeah yeah proofread so, edited got my own editor everything. got my own yeah it's funny so my the editor i got was a, a woman named julia give her a shout out but i could tell she was it was a perfect dynamic really because she was not the kind of she was not the audience for the book put it that way right very classy middle class woman middle age you know mm-hmm. i mean just very very respectable lady and she's not the audience let's put it bluntly right so some of her notes and she was great like I took all her notes on board and made all the very small changes that she recommended, but there were some changes. It was just humor that went way over her head. So there's one scene in Foville around chapter nine, where David is in the anarcho-capitalist settlement called New Kansas in Eastern Europe. And just like I've described, it's kind of like Blade Runner, very futuristic, very, you know, flashing holograms. I don't go into too much detail about it, but you get the impression that this is a pretty functioning place. And, one of the characters takes David to the, the, the dingy parts of town. And I just describe it as guns, drugs, plastic straws. This place had it all. <laughs> and she just put a little remark saying, plastic straws? <laughs> the joke being that, you know. Um, in Do you reckon the future, that's the way she read it as well? She's like reading this. Because, like, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, plastic, my, straws. plastic straws. That's what I mean. And she's like, huh? And uh, but that's the joke is, is like in my future, you know, plastic straws are on the black market. Not that but black market doesn't exist. <laughs> that's and, not even far off the fucking future now. But that's it, funny. You know, there is no such thing as a black market in, an, in a stateless society, but it was just the more dingier parts where you can get whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And plastic straws being one of them. And I thought, again, it's all about, it's all about using she's the never, few words. She's never bought drugs in her life. Like, that's exactly. It, she's not the audience. It's like, it reminds you of that part of uh, when Quentin Tarantino was in an interview around the time Kill Bill Volume 1 came out and he's getting slated by this woman mm. because he's recommending that parents should take their kids to go see Kill Bill because in America, as long as you've got a parent with you, you can pretty much watch fucking anything. All right. A little bit different to how it is in the UK, you know? So, uh, and Well, UK- I was like 10 and my mum's husband bought me a CD the other day. Yeah, but that's, a 12. that's a 12. That's a 15 at the time. Was it? I swear, okay. I'm sure it was. Well, anyway, I'm always positive, but anyway, yeah, fuck it, who cares? Quentin Tarantino was getting slated by this woman. She's an arsehole anyway. And then by the end of it, he's just like, well, I didn't write, I didn't make it for you, Janet. <laughs> and, and that's how I felt about, about like, you know, Julia's great at what she did to it. And I'll, I'll always go to her for my editing from now on because she's the perfect 
person for that sort of thing. She doesn't, she's not going to kiss my ass. She's not going to be like, Oh, I thought it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what you want. man. I need 100%. someone to be like, you need to fix this, this and this, but I accept that some of the things are just going to go way over her head. And yeah. I just have to take that on the chin and be like, I didn't make it for you, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> make it for you, Julia. Yeah. I get you. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, um, that was who, who my editor was. And I recommend, you know, because originally my intention was I was going to try and find an agent. And the way to get an agent these days is that you sort of get like three chapters or 10,000 words or 15,000 words with a little synopsis and you just send it out there in an email with a covering letter and all this. It's a lot of bullshit. And a few of them kind of got back to me and said, thank you for contacting us, but it's not what we're looking for. And I just kind of stopped and thought, these aren't publishers. These are fucking agents. All right. These are the people that'll be representing me. And it's like, I don't yeah. need their fucking permission to publish my book. I'll do it myself. In this day and age, we spoke about this already on podcast, the, the, the idea of uh, the term prosumer. We're now in an, in, in an era of the digital age where the consumer and the producer have become the same thing. That's what I am. Hey, I'm a prosumer. Where else are you going to be able to smoke fucking joints and talk about your book willy-nilly? Yeah, and have a good time, and you know what I mean, and just yeah. fucking, you know what I mean, try and sell your book. You know, have a, you know, you, you, say, say you're on a fucking TV show, having an interview. Uh, so, Daniel, um, chapter one really went over my head. Uh, can you explain the corridor section? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you get a fucking, you'd get criticised more than you'd get exactly. to explain. You know what I mean? So, so I thought, you know what, I'll do it myself. Get a team of decent people. Luckily, I've got. I want to give a shout out to my dad, Spike, and and Donna. They were great. Donna especially very helpful when it came to hooking me up with Julia, hooking me up with Warren, the printer. And then obviously Stefan was my connection that I from the past. And I want to give a shout out to Manu. I can't even pronounce his last name. He's French. Manu <laughs> Delinier. That's the last name. He's a, he's a fucking great dude. He I'll did, clip all this. This will be a clip. This will, this he did a, he did a, he did a title for me and it's a beautiful title. Um, and I'll always be going to him for any titles I do in the future. He's a character in the book very briefly. He's only in it very, very briefly, but he's called Numa. Because in France, he told me the youth in France do this thing where they swap letters around in their names to make another name. So his name is Manu, but he, he, his nickname was Numa. So in the uh-huh. book, there's a character called Numa who's a uh, who's a hacker. My nickname's Nias. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, technically, you're two characters in the book because Doctor Murray, Doctor Sean Murray, even though it uses your name, he's not you. It's just your name. But there's a character. I fucking hope not. But there's a character in the middle of the book called Benny, and that's you. Technically, a more dumbed down version of you, because Benny's never watched Blade Runner, whereas you have. You know, there's a scene in the book, without giving too much away. There's a particular scene where a character is kind of reliving his past, and it's based on our memories. Because why not write what you know and then start mm-hmm. to fictionalize it? Let's always have a strong foundation. And uh, I was writing that scene when we were 20 years of age, me, you, and Brett Hackett. Oh, your battery's going low, is it? We'll wrap this up soon enough. Nearly done anyway. Me, you, me, you and Brett Hackett, yeah. Sorry. We're on, we're on the roof terrace of my house, the, the customs house in, in Portland. And we're getting high, getting blazed. We've got a laptop out, and we've got Vangelis playing. And Surely we've got to give a shout-out to Vangelis. Yeah. He's got to be a massive inspiration for all of our stories. Always Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, Philip Just, K. Dick. And, and, and all he does is make noise. That's the crazy thing. He, make, he produces and he's sound a massive waves. inspiration. Massive. I mean, yeah. So it's almost word for word that memory 
that I put in the book where they described Blade Runner Blues, the song and the scene about Deckard, because Blade Runner was in a very unusual film in the sense that it kind of was less on the action and more on the character, more on the focus of the characters themselves and the philosophical questions that kind of pushes towards you. And there's that one scene where Deckard is kind of weary from that fight he had with the big android. And he goes to drink his scotch or whiskey, whichever it is. This one is on the balcony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you just see that flying cargo pass and you can oh, see the... Man. You can see the... You can you close your eyes and you can just fucking yeah. hear the, the fucking tune. Yeah. And the funny... <laughs> so Hackby's in the book describing Blade Runner to Benny. And he describes this just this particular scene. And it came from my... It came from the heart, the way I described it. It, it pretty much came out first time. And... um Incidentally, by pure accident, it almost describes certain aspects of my own book. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I fucking know. About the androids looking like people. Yeah. That's fucking crazy, man. So any any questions? Any other questions you want to go through? Okay, let's see. Have a look through my notes. I always do this thing where I write notes and don't don't read them in what? any of my podcasts whatsoever like i said so, this is the like, first time i've done this so i apologize if i was a bit all over the place at the beginning because it's the you first know what, time mate? what you described it spoiler free because at the end of the day right you're trying to explain your book and sell it but you don't want to spoil it because obviously you want people to read it and- yeah there's a lot of twists and turns as well right the book consists of 15 chapters and each five chapters is a distinctive is its own distinctive act and the pacing of it, it's not so much slow, but it just kind of goes along. And then as it progresses through each five chapters, it kind of becomes more kinetic and intense. And then it kind of hits a crescendo by that fifth chapter. And then part two, and it slows again and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. Because in the middle part of the book, in the second act, it's not just David's story, it's also Hackby's story. And it goes, Hackby in chapter six and then it goes david chapter seven and then chapter eight goes hackby david and then chapter nine is hackby david hackby david and then by chapter 10 it's hackby david hackby david hackby david so it becomes more kinetic yeah and then it hits the crescendo the the crisis point and then boom part three of the book and then it slows again and that's what i was I going for i don't know if i have any questions really because we've described it beautifully so anything I'm going to add has already been gone through. Yeah, we pretty much covered it all. And um, Port Port City is just there because I think it's a cool name for a city. Port City. Yes, yeah, so Port- inspired by Port-O, Bordeaux. Like, yeah, boy, it's a fictional version of Bordeaux. Because uh, I I was living there, you know. And then I have in brackets. Where is it? The other city name. New Kansas. Where? Nah, nah, nah. Hold on, hold on. I parked. So thirteen. Oh, a part city. Yeah. Right. So, sorry. Let me let me clarify this. So, Apart City is the is a real franchise in France of hotel chain, kind of like um, not like Best Western, but like like your Holiday Inns. It's like the French version of Holiday Inn, but it's called Apart City. So it's a hotel, basically. Um, okay. I don't specify. So that's what I, that is like Zone Thirteen. Apart City is just like an area. Like Zone Thirteen is the district that he's in because I didn't specify yeah. where exactly he was. But um, Europe is in this future is broken up into different zones, and he's just staying in an apart city in Zone Thirteen. Yeah, man, that's 
I don't think we need to add anything else. No, no cool. more questions from me. And like I said, this podcast will always be here for those that read the book. Um, anyone that's still watching this, you know, um, subscribe. Well, lo- follow our Instagram, our Save Room podcast Instagram, so you can stay updated. The links are in the description. Or you can follow my own Instagram, DK underscore Pike. I'm, on, I'm only on Instagram, not on anything else uh, to stay so that you know when the release date is. It'll be in December. And yeah. And then once you've read the book, come back to this podcast and, you know, maybe we'll yeah, pick 100%. up on this. We might pick up on this in six months time. We'll see how the book does, if it does well and people want to. No, we definitely have to do a part two when we're in the studio. Just Yeah, we'll do like a spoiler Cause version. Because we've kind of, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because we kind of briefly went over things spoiler three trying not to you know what i mean we were trying to sell it you know what i mean I'm yeah. not trying to ruin it <laughs> yeah and like i said you and i are terrible at, at being linear we kind of just go from oh yeah from point to point, shit, point. That shit. i mean i can there's only a certain number of linear games i can go through yeah that's like two i mean yeah resident evil is quite linear but like you make the exception because it's such a good game yeah same exactly. with final fantasy up until like the recent ones where they start going free world but yeah. free world open world but yeah exactly but anything else anything else anything no, I mean, say I think... about the podcast yeah well like i said you know what i mean there's a lot of bullshit going on in the world right now with this new variant this that and the other and um you know i don't want to sound too doom and gloom not necessarily about the the, the mainstream media and their propaganda i'm not about them but more so a case of the actual real life implications i'm working in a gym as a pt and it's a big gym and this pandemic's not been kind to it and you know it could well be that I'll be out of the job if things don't go well over the new year, January, February time. And that doesn't bother me because this was always my job as a PT was always plan B plan A was to be a creator, to be a writer, to be a producer, to be something where I can be free in my mind. So if you, if people are watching this and you're not subscribed, hit that subscribe button because we're going to be doing this as our this is going to be our career one day. And we're only going to produce more and more content because I'm juggling working full-time being in a relationship writing this out and the other and doing this so soon enough you're going to see more content once we've got the studio more time on creating content for people to laugh and giggle and learn some shit so if you're not subscribed hit that subscribe button because it's going to help us and- that's the thing as well we need to do more call to actions don't we yeah Fuck that's it, it. Because we're shit, do you know what we're shit at fucking introduce if we if we could get serious for a second, like for 30 seconds and introduce it, you know what I mean? We will, like, we will. I, I, more so when we're in the I know, I mean, we'll, we'll, yeah, it just all comes with like fucking when we're in the studio, yeah. When shit, we're in the studio, yeah, yeah. like we'll just be like, hit that subscribe button, but yeah, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And uh, you know, because we're only going to keep doing this and we'll see how it right, Here's a uh, question before we film up battery dies and we stop recording because like we ain't really got no one lined up for the next couple of weeks have we so here's a here's a challenge slash three people right you don't have to name them right now or anything but in the next couple of days message me or you can name them right now if you want like three people think in the back of your head like actual people we think we could get just think three people you know what I mean like Jake, you'd want to, I know Vincenzo, Jake, yeah, Jake, that's, Jake Vincenzo is one of them, you can get him before Christmas, easy. Yeah, Vincenzo and Natali. Jake, love to do Flash Peasants. Yeah, Flash Peasants, and uh, just anyone we stumble upon, just 
we'll go out. That was that was free right there. You know, because of the whole doom and gloom situation around us, um, it kind of gives me a kick in the ass. You know, because don't forget, like when the podcast was kind of booming during the summer, um, the whole Delta variant thing was hanging over our heads. Not that I was concerned about the Delta variant, but I was more concerned about how that really gets into people's minds that are on board with the narrative. So it kind of made me distance myself from the job and not and do the bare minimum of it. So I was focused on getting guests, 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 guests. And I started to get more involved in my PT and my job and all that. And the podcast, you know, I was spending less time getting guests and all that. But now that we're back to this again, it's almost like a blessing in disguise where it's like, fuck, you know, fuck plan B. Let's just go for plan A. Yeah, man. Do you know what? Should we end up with a little story? <laughs> Should we end up with the, uh, the story we wrote about last night? You know, the, oh, oh. yeah, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh yeah! All right, let's do this. Let's do this. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you tell us a little treat. <laughs> so um, <laughs> all right. in 2013, this, is, this, right? is, this was uh, I came to visit. Yeah, and you came... I, ne- I nearly never left. Yeah, you nearly never left, and it was nice. Um, you came down in early 2013 to visit me, and you were there for about three weeks. You know, I paid for your ticket, or you paid to get a single ticket down to Weymouth, and I was going to pay for your return ticket, but I just never paid. I just never got around to doing it until eventually, it's like, all right, you got to go home, Sean. Not well, not saying I wanted that. you to go home, but you had to go back and and sort some sort affairs some out. Shit out, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you were always welcome. My mum didn't give a shit. I didn't give a shit. I was happy to have you well, there. No, that room was pretty much set up for me, wasn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. I, but, but, uh, yeah, you know, you had to go back and sort some affairs out. But um, yeah. So it was just a. There was just one particular day that was just insane. It's like you could write a whole film about this day. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's February time. It's pretty gr- grim, but we're just getting stoned. And we went to Asda and I need to go for a piss. And I thought, I'm going to piss outside Asda. And I'm like, you keep guard. And I'm pissing already. And I'm like, you keep guard. And you just went, keeping guard. And that just fucking made me laugh. My abs tense up. My piss just goes off like a Kasha jet wash. Like, <laughs> you never heard piss so loud and fucking... Is this the same day, Alex Bagson's best friend? Yeah, so we Is go into the Asda. Same day? So we go into Asda, right? And we go into the cat. We go into the, the restaurant upstairs, and we're having breakfast. And this um, special needs guy comes up to you. You're wearing your Manchester United shirt, and he's some something. This is like seven years ago. This happened, right? So he comes along, and he's like, "Oh, are you were uh, Manchester United." And he goes, "Oh, I'm best mates with uh, Alex Ferguson." And at that point, we're just like, "This man's crazy." And check was like, please. yeah, as a joke, I went, check, please. That's sort of cliche. <laughs> but then we made a joke about it last night saying that wouldn't it be funny that he actually generally was best mates of Alex Ferguson and he just had brain damage, like some horrific accident. There's, there's actually footage out there or like a photograph of this man with his arm around Alex Ferguson before the accident. <laughs> and ever since then, he's just been trying to prove to people that he really is Alex Ferguson's best mate. <laughs> so anyway, we, um, we go to this guy's house. I think his name was Ben. He had a real nice house and he had a free house. He invited us over. He said, we're coming over, we'll smoke some weed. And we're just sat in his living room and this uh, drug dealer shows up. And uh, he's very stoic, very kind of like in drug dealer mode. He said, you know, I'll give him credit where he's due. Like he's very professional. I mean, he kept up the act for a while. He kept up the act. He was just like very like, you want 2G, do you? Very professional. Yeah, do you want 2G? Blah, 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 right? And then you and I are just chatting amongst ourselves. We smoke a bit. We roll up a joint. We start smoking. All that. He doesn't leave because he's friends with the guy. And um, we just started talking about, because bearing in mind, this was 2013, so like five, six months before that, um, uh, Luke, uh, George Lucas had sold Star Wars, the IP, to Disney. Right. And so you and I were speculating among, um, amongst ourselves, like, what 
the future of Star Wars is going to look like. And out of nowhere, the drug dealer just changed his persona and just like ripped the shirt. He's like, fucking Star Wars. <laughs> and you just see this. <laughs> he rips open a shirt and it's like a Yoda show, like a Star Wars show. You're like, fucking Star Wars. Fuck yeah. Like, episode two is very, very, then, very criticized, but it's my favorite. Just, yeah, this drug dealer just went from a very stoic to a fucking nerd instantly. It's like we opened up the floodgates on this man's brain. And we just started, he was like, yeah, so I have theories on the blog that, uh, you know, it's going to be individual <laughs> characters having their own film, like Yoda and Mace Windu. And wasn't fucking wrong. <laughs> he was wrong about a lot of things. He wasn't wrong about certain things. Exactly. I mean, he did it recently. Exactly. <laughs> so that always cracked me up. You can't predict what people are going to be like, you know? You never yeah, know. That's it. You never fucking know. <laughs> it's funny, man. That's yeah, it. good times. Good times. Anyway, so wrap this up i'll be on the xbox man anyway so cool man cool man so uh, yeah i'll have to subscribe yeah hit that subscribe button if you're still watching uh, really helps because uh we don't know what the future may hold and we i know what i want to do i want to fucking make strangers laugh and think and uh buy my book when it's out to support me because you will not be disappointed it is i'm it's it's best i could do when I sent that manuscript, I was like, that's the best I can do. I'm not saying it's the best thing ever. I would never do that. I'm not that up my own ass. But it's the best I could do. There's nothing more I can change. All right. Well, we'll sell it this way. Well, I'll try to sell it the best way I can. Because I have read it. I've read it twice. I've read it twice and skimmed through it today. Um, so from someone who struggles to read, even though he's a writer, fucking once I started reading, can't stop. There you go. Thank you, no, gone. I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not even dyslexic. I don't know what it is. I think I'm more visual than I am. You know what it is? I think it's like but, a muscle. It's like when I don't read for like a week or two weeks, and I get back into it. It my attention takes a little while to. Oh, oh. you're on ten percent. I'll, I'll I'll wrap this up real quickly. You know, it, I struggle to read 10, 20 pages, and then eventually, before you know, it, I'm banging out fifty pages a day, reading wise. It's a, it, it takes a lot to. It's not even that. It's concentrate. it's. I ha- if I'm not into it within five pages let's say then i just i'm not awesome yeah. that. it's like it's not it, it's obviously not good or my attention span is not willing to keep up with this novel you know exactly. what i mean but my twice i have with your book and i'm not that, that's not even saying that as your best mate or co-host that's saying that as someone who loves to fucking yeah i appreciate it reading, right? yeah so there you go my two golden rules are don't waste the reader's time and don't insult their intelligence so you'll find that with this book I don't, I'm not going to waste your time and I ain't going to insult your intelligence. Just enjoy it. You either like it or you don't like it. But if you do like it, fucking enjoy the ride.